we're in a series right now called Unearth, and uh, we're looking at some of the greatest archaeological discoveries ever that come alongside the Bible and help prove and support uh, the, the, the reliability of God's Word, and, and it's just an exciting, exciting thing. Before we get to that, though, I want to introduce somebody to you. Nick, would you stand up real quick? This is Nick Nicolay. You can give him a hand, even though you don't know what you're clapping for. Nick is uh, our site supervisor on our construction project out in the West Campus, and, um, and uh, Lord willing, work is going to begin this week. We got delayed a little bit by a piece of paper, and anyway, that's a long story, but anyway, work is going to begin, Lord willing, weather permitting, this week, if not this week, next week, and we're so excited about our West Campus, and I wanted to introduce him to you because he has moved down here for the year of construction. You're going to see him walking our halls, and you're going to know who that is, but uh, he is overseeing all of that chaos out there on the West Campus, and you're going to see that building go up, and he's going to be down there with a hard hat, and that, this is the guy right here. So, Nick, thank you for being here, and welcome. So we are excited about that West Campus, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, the Lord, over the last couple of years, has just, he's just given us his favor. He's given us land. He's provided a way for us to, to start a second campus. So here, a year from now, we're gonna be a multi-site church. One church meeting in multiple locations. This location is out on the far west side of Bella Vista. And if you take the bypass around, if you go down to Lowe's and hop on the bypass, go all the way to the Highlands Boulevard exit, and we own 15 acres of land that hugs the off-ramp right off that exit. It is gonna be awesome. A lot of you live out west. We just believe the Lord is going to just spread our wings farther than we've ever been spread before. And we're gonna reach more and more people for the gospel. It's going to be an exciting year, and the bulldozers are showing up shortly, so it's going to be exciting. So you guys drive by that campus, and every time I ask you, every time you drive by it, just say a prayer over it, would you? You know, my, not to like, but for the last year or so, my wife and I made a regular habit to drive out there and just pray over it, and I want to invite you to do the same thing. Just pray over this thing, pray for the construction, pray for, for, for all of it. But as I was saying, we're in a series right now called Unearth, and we're diving into the world of biblical archaeology. We're allowing these artifacts that they're digging up to just come alongside God's Word and prove its validity and reliability and authenticity, all that great stuff. Um, they're digging up stuff on a regular basis. They move some dirt, they pull something out of the ground, and it verifies that everything that was said in the Bible is true, that the Bible actually does recount an accurate history that it talks about in its pages. It talks about real people, real events, real places. So the Bible names things, and then they dig up stuff that verifies it, and that's what archaeology is doing, and it's fantastic. All this stuff inspires my faith like you would not believe by continually reminding me that uh, what we believe, our faith is grounded in truth that you can actually see. Your faith in, in the Lord is not as blind as what you might have always thought. No, no, no. There is all kinds of evidence and truth that, that, that supports our belief, grounds us in things that we can see. Now, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't quite sure how you were going to respond to the first sermon in this series. There's a little bit of the unknown. I've never preached anything like this before. So I really didn't know if this was going to be like super interesting to you or it would be Snoozeville, all right? I, I wasn't sure, to be quite honest with you. And based on the feedback that many of you have provided for me, which I greatly appreciate, um, I don't think it's Snoozeville. I think it's uh, scratching the itch for a number of you. How do you like that? It's scratching an itch. So um, I believe it's doing that. But I'll tell you what I've really appreciated because this doesn't hardly ever happen. Over the last week, as I've just interacted with different you know, students here at the church, I've had a number of junior and high school students make a point unsolicited to come up to me and say, man, I really like what you said last week. That's a big deal, by the way. 
Or I found that interesting. My, my son Brock had a buddy with him at church last week, and after church he said, that was very interesting, Mr. Williams. And I said, whoa, who's Mr. Williams? That's my dad. And um, anyway, but to have somebody who's 14, 15 years old say that, at my age, after a sermon that was 61 minutes long or something like that, whatever, it won't be that long today, I promise. I've already been ridden pretty hard over that one. Okay, so, um, but it uh, won't be quite that long today. But I'll tell you, the, uh, that really meant something to me. And, and when I put these sermons together, our junior high and high school students and our young adults are very much on my mind. Very much so. Especially with this series, because... We need to do everything that we know how to do as a church family to help prepare these young adults for life. And I'm not talking about their careers. I'm not talking about how they're gonna pay the bills in a couple years. I'm talking about their faith and how we're gonna help them stay grounded in their faith. And honestly, if this series will help create some foundational blocks for their faith, even if they don't remember all this stuff, if they just know that there is evidence that they can see that proves the validity of our faith, if it just adds a few defensive arrows in their quiver of faith, man, praise God, and, and, um, and that, would be, that would be a step forward. I pray for all of us that it would do that, really, that um, it, would, it would just energize our faith. And if there's anybody here today or is watching me online right now or who might watch this a year from now who's still just not sure what you believe about all this stuff, you're kind of on the bubble when it comes to the Bible, and, and maybe you would still consider yourself somewhat skeptical of the Bible and God's Word, what I hope then is that these sermons, if you'll, if you'll stay with us on it, will help you walk down this journey of faith, will help you move closer to a decision to have a very authentic walk with Jesus Christ, and if they help do that too, then praise God. Now today, we are going to explore what many archaeologists describe as the greatest, most significant, most influential archaeological discovery ever made. I'm referring to what is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Who has heard of them before? I would imagine quite a few of you have, um, but I don't assume that all of you have. But the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I'd imagine what we know about them are different levels of interest and different levels of, of information. But uh, this is considered, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the most significant find ever. And here's what it is. And, and we can get very specific, but I'm going to try to stay pretty high level here for a minute. But essentially, the Dead Sea Scrolls was about 900 scrolls, ancient scrolls, that they found out in the Judean desert just west of, of the Dead Sea over in the Holy Land. When I say ancient, I mean that they are scrolls that are around 2,000 years of age. Some of them date back even a little bit further into you know, about 135 to 150 BC. There's one scroll they found that some archeologists believe it goes all the way back to 202 BC. So we're talking about a season of time that is 130, 150, even up to 200 years before Jesus was born. So these 900 scrolls about a whole lot of different things, but among them, over 200 of them were scrolls of ancient texts that we know today as the Old Testament of the Bible. In fact, um, these uh, scrolls that they found, they were found in caves. There was 11 caves in all that produced scrolls over several years, and they consist of hundreds of the oldest biblical text in existence today. 
So old, in fact, that they are at least a thousand years older than any previously known complete books of the Old Testament. Some of them are manuscripts. Some of them were broken into fragments and had to be put back together. But when they did, they contained every book of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. Now, friends, let me just tell you something. If that doesn't register for you, if that's going to like foosh, foosh, or voosh, then uh, you missed something very significant. And for those of you that caught it, nudge the person next to you and let them know that's a huge discovery. All right, I'm going to give you a minute to do it. Let them know. Let the guy next to you know that is, that is a huge discovery. The first scrolls were found completely by accident in 1947, and they were found by a couple of Bedouin shepherds who were out um, in the western side of that Dead Sea area, in the area that we know as Qumran today, and um, they were out with their goats, and one of the boys started throwing rocks. Now, that's hard to believe because boys don't ever throw rocks at anything. It's so hard to believe that. But they're throwing rocks out there in the desert. One of those rocks goes into a cave. In fact, the, the cave behind me, I'm going to show you a picture of it. When he did that, um, he heard something break. So that rock goes sailing through that cave opening, and he hears something break. He goes to investigate it, and he finds that there's these ancient um, pottery, we would call them vases or jars, about yay big. And he found 10 of those. And uh, some of them contained ancient manuscripts. There were seven ancient manuscripts found in that cave. Now, he had no idea what he found or the significance of that find, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, talking about how the caves, how the scrolls got from the caves, and how they changed hands, and where they moved to, and all that stuff over the next couple of years, because you can easily read that on your own. But let me just say, eventually, and I would say by the hand of God, those original seven scrolls that came out of that first cave, eventually, over time, make their way back to Israel in the hands of experts and archaeologists, preserved and intact, and it's, it's a praise God kind of thing when you study about what happened to them over those first couple of years. Two of those scrolls are among the most significant of the 900 that they pulled out of these caves over several years. It would take about another year, it was April of 1948, that it was fully realized that they had something very special, and they made a public announcement to the world that ancient manuscripts of the Bible had been found in the Judean desert, and little did they know when they made that announcement that those seven scrolls were just the tip of the iceberg. Because in the years that followed, they would, they would uh, search over 30 caves, and they would find 11 caves that actually, in total, 10 more caves on top of the one they found that had ancient manuscripts. Those caves are numbered 1 through 11 in the order in which manuscripts were found. So they found a cave, manuscripts, that's 1. Cave 2, that manuscript 2. So just pretty simple way to do it. Um, but they found... Uh, tons of these scrolls. And the picture behind me, I want to show you probably what is the most famous of the caves. Um, if you look on a book or a website or a postcard or a magazine cover about the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is probably the picture that you're going to see. This is cave number four. And uh, they found a ton of manuscripts and manuscript fragments in this cave. And this is a picture that I actually took myself in 2017 when I was there. And I'm not, I'm not afraid to tell you this. I'm not embarrassed to admit it to you. But when I was standing out there in the desert looking at cave number four, um, I had a moment. I would say that this was probably up there as one of the greatest moments of my entire trip to Israel. And some of you are like, your, one of your greatest moments was staring at a cave in the desert. What kind of boring trip were you on? I don't know. But now for me personally, I just, not a supernatural moment. I didn't see a vision. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about I had a personal moment 
out there in the desert, staring at this empty cave and taking pictures of it. Because I've thought about these scrolls and I've looked at pictures of these places for several decades. I probably first heard of the scrolls back when I was in college, when I was in Bible college, because you cannot go through four years of Bible college and not learn something about the Dead Sea Scrolls and their significance. And I took a class in college called Biblical Archaeology, learned quite a bit about them. And that's when I really started to begin to understand the significance of this discovery that had happened back in 1948. And I just... I just had a moment. You imagine studying about something so long and then seeing it for the first time? Well, that was me. So 75 years later is where we are now, and they have been studying these scrolls for all this time, and they are still making new discoveries. They have not learned everything there is to learn about these scrolls yet. And I don't know if if we today can truly appreciate just how much work went into preserving these scrolls. Many of them had been broken up into small little fragments teeny small fragments. They, they, you know, um, just after 2,000 years, they just start to fall apart, and they broke into all these pieces, and, and um, they have painstakingly collected thousands of these fragments, and for the last, you know, number of decades, they've been trying to put these scrolls back together. Now, I can tell you this right now, that if I could read the text, and I had the skills that it takes to preserve ancient text and put this work together, even if I possess that ability, I can tell you right now, I do not have the patience for it. (laughs) Some of you love jigsaw puzzles. Let me tell you something. This is the jigsaw puzzle that nightmares are made out of right here. (laughs) Trying to put these thousands of pieces, but for years and years, thank the good Lord that there are people that dig this and they love putting this stuff together. So they have been, for years, putting back together many of these ancient scrolls. But not all the scrolls were all broken up into pieces. In fact, there was another number of them that were still together. Now, just so you know what I'm talking about, when I say an ancient scroll, um, what I'm talking about is like, for us, we open the Bible and we have books that are bound and you flip the pages, it's super easy. Back in the day before the printing press, before they had things like this, they had scrolls. So they would take parchment paper and what we call it parchment paper is animal skins and other things, and they would lay them out flat, and they would write scripture on them. And then they would bind them together, and then they would roll them up on each side. So, you know, a, 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 a you know, religious person would come out to the synagogue, a rabbi, and they would open their scroll, and they would roll it out. And they would roll it to where they wanted to read. These are these scrolls. This is what I'm talking about. Not all of them were broken. They found plenty of them that were still intact and probably the probably what is considered the greatest scroll that they found was found in that very first cave it's a complete copy of the book of Isaiah a complete copy when i say a complete copy all 66 chapters that we know about in our Bible, they are represented. They also found a second scroll of Isaiah. It's almost complete. It's missing a little bit, but to find a complete complete scroll of Isaiah still intact, is, is remarkable. And when the, this, this scroll right now is on display at a museum in Israel called the Shrine of the Book, and uh, when they rolled out this scroll, it measures out at 24 feet in length, and it takes up 17 sheets of parchment that have all been put together, and it's still all in one piece. Now, it certainly shows the age of it, but you can still read it clearly, and uh, if you ever get a chance to go over to Israel and actually see this exact scroll, just know that when you do, you're not looking so much at biblical history. You are looking at biblical treasure. 
That's what you're looking at. Now, here's what's really cool. Because most people will never make it to Israel to go look at this uh, with their eyes. But with the use of technology, they have taken high-resolution pictures of this entire scroll. They've created online tools, the interactive tools, that you can go online right now and you can zoom in and you can read it yourself and you can, you can uh, examine every square inch of this scroll. Now, what's behind me is one of those tools. This is, um, this is not a digital representation. This isn't an artist's draw. This is the actual scroll. These are high-resolution pictures that you can look at. And what I want you to, I want you to appreciate what you're looking at. I'm going to try to get out of the way so you can see it. Um, you are looking at uh, the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and we learned a little bit about him last week. He, he, he prophesied during Hezekiah's reign and a few other kings. But uh, when he wrote this, he wrote this about 700 years before Jesus was born. Now, we don't have Isaiah's original manuscript. The oldest one we got is this. This was copied about 500 years later. So I want you to kind of get these dates in your mind. This is about 200 BC, about 200 years before Jesus, and, um, and it's 500 years after Isaiah wrote the original. Now, what is Isaiah full of? Prophecy. Specifically, prophecy about Jesus. And I want you to see something here. What they've done with this tool is you can go to any passage in the book of Isaiah that you have on your lap today, and it will give you the ancient Hebrew, and it will give you the, um, the English translation. So I want to show you a couple of these. I want, I want you guys to scroll over to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It's a little bit tricky because Hebrew leads, reads from right to left, and we naturally want to go left to right. But So here is, right here, this is Hebrew, this is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That's how we know it today. You roll out this scroll, scroll, and there it is, and here's what it says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman has conceived and is bearing a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. Now, many of us have read that before. It's one of those passages we bring out every Christmas, and we point this was to Jesus. But what you are looking at is actually a high-resolution picture of a scribe who wrote the words of Isaiah 200 years before Jesus, Emmanuel, was ever born. How many things can you look at today, prophecy, that you can actually see that was before Jesus was born? Interesting, when you go into the New Testament, you read the Gospels, Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, he quotes that exact verse. He quotes it. He says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, all of this took place. He's talking about the birth of Jesus to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. What prophet is he talking He's talking about Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So you are looking at ancient text, 200 years before Jesus, that Matthew refers to in his own gospel about Jesus. Now that's pretty stinking cool. Let me show you another one. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Let's scroll to that. There it is, Isaiah 9, 6. You click on it, here's the English translation. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will be on his shoulders. He is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Those words copied 200 years before Jesus was born. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy and every prophecy in the Old Testament and in the book of Isaiah and all throughout the Old Testament, every last one of them. I just want you to see today 
That this is not just things we talk about in this atmosphere of make-believe. No, these are real scriptures predating Jesus, referencing things that will happen that Jesus fulfills. And there it is. You can look at it right there in high-resolution pictures if you never make it to Israel. Boy, I could, honestly, I could stand up here for hours and talk about all the different discoveries, um, the, the scrolls they have found. If I had hours upon hours and you were willing to sit here and listen to me talk about it, I would tell you about um, a scroll. Uh, believe it or not, the, the Isaiah scroll is not the longest one they found. They found one that's called the Temple Scroll, and when they, and they rolled that out, it was actually 26 feet long. There is another scroll that they have not been able to put back together. It came in fragments. They don't have all the fragments, but they've got enough of it to know that if they were able to reconstruct construct the entire scroll. If you laid it out in length, it would be 98 feet long. And what it is, is a paraphrase of the first five books of the Old Testament. And we know the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Can you imagine? Somebody took the time to paraphrase the first five books of the Bible on a 98 foot long scroll. If I had more time, I'd tell you about the Copper Scroll. Copper Scroll is probably one of the most fascinating finds they found out there in the desert. It was found in cave number three in the year 1952. And what makes this unique is that it was written on metal. That's why they call it the Copper Scroll. It was very fragile. This is the exact state that they found it in the cave. It was very fragile, and it took a lot of scientific stuff to open them up, and they actually ended up cutting it. But when they did, they read the scrolls. And you know what they found? They found an ancient treasure map. This scroll identifies 60 plus locations throughout Jericho, Qumran, and Jerusalem, and it talks about hidden treasure in all of these places. Hidden treasure that has never been found, by the way. And some of you are like, this just got a whole lot more interesting. You're in your Jones hat on. <laughs> hidden treasure, now we're talking. And the fact that it was written on a metal scroll means that it was meant to last, it was important. They think what it's talking about is the treasures of the temple that somebody moved out and hid before the destruction of the temple. We don't know that for sure, but it's never been found. Maybe it never will be, but some of you are already thinking about Googling stuff later today because you're interested. <laughs> if I had the time, I'd tell you about the, uh, the manuscript they found uh, that's called the Messianic Testimony. It's a one parchment sheet of uh, five scriptures. So a scribe sat down and he accurately copied five verses from the Old Testament trying to pinpoint in the Old Testament where it's talking about the coming Messiah. And so, so this is what this is. And, and evidently there was somebody among the group that was writing these scribes and, or, or copying these scrolls and, and protecting them that was trying to figure out what the Bible had to say about the coming of the Lord's chosen one. And that's what this is. So we know for a fact, you read the New Testament, the people of that day, this was written about 100 years before Jesus was born. Somebody was looking forward to the coming of the one that the Lord had spoken about. They read about, like the prophecies we read in Isaiah and other places. So this scribe was trying to figure out what verses specifically related to that. You read into the New Testament, and there is this expectation of the one to come. John the Baptist talked about the forerunner of Jesus. He talked about the Lamb of God who is to come. And when Jesus came, uh, he says, look, the Lamb of God. Behold, it's the Lamb of God. And, and it says in John chapter 1, verse 41, that the first thing Andrew did was to go find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. There was this expectation. Jesus had a conversation with a woman. We know today is the woman at the well. John chapter 4, verse 25. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So the scriptures led people to expect 
this coming of the one from God, and evidently this scribe was trying to isolate those texts in this messianic testimony. I hope that you'll take some time. We're barely even talking about them right now. I hope you'll spend some time digging into this. People have been writing about these scrolls for 75 years. Um, if you ever get the chance to see them in person, I highly recommend it. And when you see them, just know this, that you are laying eyes on one of the most significant archaeological discoveries ever. And I want to take a couple minutes that we have time left today. I want to tell you why it is so significant. And I want to tell you exactly how these scrolls help prove the reliability of God's word. But first, let me share this with you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this, all scripture is God-breathed, all of it. In other words, all the Bible makes this claim about itself that what's written in the Bible, God's word, they are from him. They're his fingerprints are all over it. And it also says and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is what the Bible claims about itself. Jesus said this about it. In Matthew 5, 18, he says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He would later say this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jeremiah, a prophet in the Old Testament, said, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. For the Christian... The word of God is everything. For the Christian, the words of Jesus is everything. And since our entire faith is taught to us through the Bible, and because this book was written thousands of years ago and copied many times by hand, there have been questions that have been raised over the years. Questions like this, and maybe questions you have asked yourself. How do we know for sure that what we have in our hands today is the same as what was written all those years ago and still what God intends for us to have? That is a good question. That is not an intimidating question. It's not a scary question. It is a question that the Dead Sea Scrolls help us answer with, with, with great energy. It's a good question. Hopefully it comes from a good place. I can tell you a common criticism of the Bible is this, and maybe you've heard this one as well. The Bible is full of errors. And there's this assumption that is made by a secular community that the fact that, hey, because this has been copied so many times over so many years and passed down by so many people, there is no way that that could have happened and it not get all messed up along the way. So there are questions. There are good questions about the Bible, questions about its reliability. You know, maybe you've been asked, what, how reliable do you think the Bible is? Let's be honest. If we can't answer this question, if we cannot prove that the Bible is reliable, if it turns out the Bible isn't reliable at all, then who cares what it says? But we care deeply about what it says because it is reliable. And I'm gonna show you today just how reliable it is. Max Anders is a preacher who has done a lot of writing in this area about apologetics and defending your faith. He wrote a book called Defending Your Faith. And in that book, he asked this question, why do I need to know that the Bible is reliable? Here's his answer. I need to know this because I need some reason to believe that the Bible can be trusted. It is true that often we believe or do not believe the Bible simply because we have decided to or not to. And that is a more true statement than what you might realize. 
There are people today uh, that might even say, I, I believe in God, I think there's good things in the Bible, but when it comes down to following Jesus and committing your life to Christ, they don't do it, not because they don't necessarily believe that there's some truth in it, they do that because they have actively made the decision, I don't wanna live as a Christian, and I don't choose that life, and so it's an active decision. So when he says, most people just believe because they want to or not, that's a true statement. That's a very true statement. However, he writes, God, God asked no one to believe anything unreasonable. If he asked no one to, he asked no one to believe nonsense. He asked no one to believe on the basis of nothing. Oh, how true that is. God is not asking you, he's not asking me to believe anything that's unreasonable. Knowing that the, the Bible is absolutely true and reliable, that is not unreasonable. Believing in the word of God is not nonsense. Believing that the Bible is absolutely true and reliable is not based on nothing or wishful thinking. No, 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 no. God's not gonna ask us to believe anything that's unreasonable. I'm gonna put something on the screen behind me and I wanna, I'm, I'm gonna leave it up there for the rest of the sermon because it's gonna take some time to sink in. So if, you, if I share it with you and you kind of read what I, I wrote it, and it doesn't quite sink in, it will by the time we're done. But here's where the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls so valuable. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls has proven to be a vital link in the unbroken chain of text that contribute to establishing textual reliability of the Old Testament scriptures. We're talking about a chain of scriptures that goes as far back as 600 BC all the way to 1008 AD. Now, I don't expect these numbers to mean anything to you right now, but they'll mean something to you here in a minute. But I wanna leave this up here, because it's also in the app, so you don't have to write it down. You can get it out of the app. But, but this, is, this is why the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is so significant. Currently, the oldest copy of any scriptures that we have anywhere in the world that we know of actually were not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls area. They actually found in 1979 in a tomb in Jerusalem. There was a tomb there that managed to stay, you know, protected all these years. And when they got into that tomb, they found uh, a scroll. This is known as the Katif Hinnom Silver Scrolls. And when they opened them up, they realized they contained scripture copies from Numbers, Exodus, and Deuteronomy, those three books of the the Old Testament. It's not a massive portion of scripture. Um, I believe it's 18 lines of text in all, but they are exact copies of, of uh, from Numbers, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. Those scrolls are about 26 to 2700 years old. They conservatively, conservatively date them back to 600 BC. So what that means is, how old is any writings from the Bible? How far back do you got to go to find any copies? About 600 BC. Now, before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, before 1947, the oldest complete copy of the Old Testament, you know, like the Old Testament, we know it today with all the books. The oldest complete copy was made in the year 1008 AD. That is a thousand years after Jesus. And it is known today as the Leningrad Codex. It's in a museum. And um, now we had other, you know, copies and portions of the Old Testament that are older than that. But I'm talking about a complete Old Testament, okay? It's, uh, it's, the, it's the version of the Bible that many of our more modern translations before 1947 were kind of based on. Is it square with the Leningrad Codex? So what I'm trying to paint for you is you have scripture copies that go all the way back to 600 B.C., 
And then it takes you all the way to 1008 AD with the complete, complete Bible. Turn about the span of 26, 2700 years. And um, what the Dead Sea Scrolls do for us is it gives us this massive amount of scrolls that fit right in the middle of these two, okay? You've got hundreds and hundreds, you've got hundreds of, of scripture between these two things. Now, this is this chain of unbroken text. And I'm just gonna simplify it for you. What they did is that um, when they, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, what they did was they took that Leningrad Codex from 1008 AD and they compared what was written there to what they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, so we're going back a thousand years. Has it been copied correctly for a thousand years? We have a thousand year old copy, older copy of Isaiah. So does Isaiah and the Leningrad Kodak mix up, meet up together? And you know what they found? They match perfectly. You have a thousand years of scribal copying that matches perfectly. Well, does it match 600 BC? So they compared the Dead Sea Scrolls to our oldest known copies of any scripture at all, and guess what? They matched perfectly. So what you've got is you've got a record, a chain of of scripture spanning the time of 26, 2700 years, 600 BC to 1008 AD, and guess what? The Bible didn't change at all. That right there is a miracle of God, friends. That is an incredible miracle of God. You have this chain of unbroken scriptures. It is awesome. I'll talk more about it in just a minute, but as they un, you know, got into the scrolls more, they had a whole lot of information about scribal practices, what it took to preserve. We learned so much from the scrolls about, uh, about what it actually took to actually create a copy of the Bible and the work that these guys did out in the desert of copying these things. Did you know that there was a, an adult male who was a scribe, might spend his entire life, his whole life work was to produce one copy of the Bible? Long before the printing press, listen, when the Gutenberg press came along and they were able to mass produce Bibles, it changed everything. So we're talking before that time, okay? You had to hand write these things. And, and so a guy would spend his whole life, they, we've got information about how a scribe would spend time writing line by line and if he made one little error, one little spacing error, one little thing, he would throw the whole thing away and start over. That's how serious they took the preservation of God's word. And I can confidently tell you today that there is no other ancient writing. Um, You look up any ancient writing that we have from anybody, philosophers, whatever, Aristotle, whatever. No ancient writing has been preserved with greater care or more accuracy than the Bible. So now we have this Dead Sea Scroll collection that gives us this massive collection of Old Testament scripture with great understanding of how these were copied, how they were cared for. They compared all of them together, letter by letter, line for line, space by pace, space, and they were absolutely together. Now, in all fairness, I, I wanna share with you, there were minor differences. Some of you will fact check me, and you should fact check me on every sermon, but there were minor differences, and um, they have taken all of these minor differences. They are actually called technically a textual variant, and your Bible will have those textual variants in the footnotes when they find these little differences, but what archaeologists and translators have determined is that they are minuscule. Minuscule. So what I mean by that is maybe um, as they've compared manuscripts from different ages, maybe a scribe misspelled somebody's name. 
or maybe they got a word out of order. But what they've determined, they've taken all of these things, compared all the, the ancient manuscripts, and they've determined that those little minuscule minor differences, they do not affect doctrine. They do not affect the meaning of the text. They change it in no significant way whatsoever. It's, real, it's really a miracle. What I'm trying to say is they haven't changed at all. Hundreds of years of copying and you have a minor misspelling of somebody's name and that's it. So what I'm trying to share with you is that you can rest assured today that the current Old Testament that you have in your lap right now is a faithful copy of the original words penned by the original author handed down for generations. That's what the Dead Sea Scrolls proved to us. Now, some of you might think, well, you haven't said a thing about the New Testament. Well, this is why I haven't said anything about the New Testament is because we're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls and there was no New Testament manuscripts found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you understand about them when they're written, that, that's not a shocker to you. You know, we have them trying to figure out when the Messiah was coming, but we don't have any references to Jesus per se. There is one manuscript that, that, um, that refers to a teacher of righteousness of that day. Was that Jesus? We have no idea. But there's no New Testament scriptures. But since we're talking about the New Testament, let me just say a quick word about this with a few minutes I have left. The New Testament, so we're talking about the four gospels and all the New Testament, all the stuff about Jesus and the church, that was written in the first century AD. So we're talking about a time in history between about 50 AD and 100 AD. That's the time frame that the New Testament was written. When I say the New Testament, I'm talking about the four gospels, the book of Acts. I'm talking about all the letters that, that the apostle Paul and the others wrote and they circulated throughout the churches. Um, we do not have any of those originals or what they are called in archaeological circles as the autographed copy. From the hand of Paul, the, I wrote this with my own hand. We don't have that. And you know what? I've thought about that quite a bit. Like, man, how nice would it be to actually like dig up sometime an actual epistle that Paul wrote or Peter? But I don't know if we're ever going to find those. And I don't know if we ever should. And here's why I say that. I mean, I would not turn down the discovery by any means. <laughs> but we are a people that have a history of worshiping objects. And it just makes me wonder, if we might be so inclined to, uh, to worship the object versus the one the object is about. Yeah. I don't know, food for thought. So they're written around 50 to 100 AD, circulated to all the churches, and they made a bunch of copies. So they would get distributed and they would have copies. They would make roughly um, our earliest copy of anything from the New Testament is from about 130 AD. So that's not that long after the originals. We're talking about a time frame. We're well within 100 years of the original. And so when you're thinking about this stuff, the older the copy, the closer to the original, the higher reliability is considered. And so we have copies that are, that are really close to the first century within 100 years of the launch of the church. And we have between the, you know, 130 AD and let's go all the way to, you know, medieval times, you know, 15th, 16th century, about the Gutenberg press time when we started, you know, mass producing Bibles. From that time frame, these ancient copies of the, of the New Testament, we have, my, my latest number, if it's changed, it's only grown, over 5,600 copies, ancient copies of the New Testament. N nowhere close. Any other ancient writings do we have that even comes close to the volume of copies of the New Testament? There's nothing else that compares to the amount of copies we have of the New Testament. 
So from the second century to the 16th century, they have compared every copy we have of the New Testament. And guess what they discovered when they, when they compare things that were written in the uh, 16th century to the stuff that was copied in the second century? You know what they found? Exact copies that has been preserved perfectly. The New Testament, it is graded at this. It has been preserved throughout the 2,000 years of church history to a percentage of 99.5% accuracy between copies from all these years. It's a miracle of God. That what you have today is exactly what was written. And you might be saying, 99.5%, why not 100%? Well, it's the same reason we don't have 100% in the Old Testament. Maybe a scribe in the 15th or 14th century misspelled somebody's name or got a word out of order, but because we have over 5,000 examples of it, they can compare them all and realize, oh, he just made a spelling error. That's it. And, and not one of those textual variants, differences between the ancient copies changes doctrine, changes the meaning of the text, the flow of the text. It doesn't change a thing about it. So what you have in your hands is reliable. So what that says to me is this. Not only is the word of God God-breathed, it is also God-protected. So what's in your hand, you can have a high level of confidence has been preserved correctly, preserved well, accurately. It's viable, it's reliable, and what you have in your hands is what the Lord wants you to have. But it still takes faith to believe it. I, I mean, I could show you all the evidence in the world and I could make all kinds of arguments for this stuff, but at the end of the day, it still comes down to faith, doesn't it? What do you believe? Do you actually believe the words of the Bible? Jesus said this, he said, the wise man is like the guy that doesn't just hear my words but also puts them into practice. He's like the wise man who builds his house on the rock and when the storms come and the trials of life come, he'll beat against that foundation but the house will stand. But the foolish man hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. He's like the foolish man who builds his house in the sand. The waters rise, the storm comes and it washes the house away. So friends, it still comes down to faith. What do you believe? And what do you put into practice for your life? If you believe the words of the Bible, then what path does that set you on in your life? Friends, it sets you on a path towards eternity is what it does. And that house that you build on the rock, well, that will last on into eternity too. But you fill it on the sand, it will not make it there. So friends, he who has an ear, let him hear. Lord, thank you for your holy word. I thank you, Lord, that not only do we have your words preserved for us today, so easily accessed in so many different forms, but Lord, we can see now through the discovery of archaeology that you have preserved these words through a season when it wasn't so easy to get your hands on. That Lord, it's been preserved accurately, it's been preserved well, but Lord, when it comes down to it, we do know that just comes down to what we believe. So Lord, I pray for our church family. I pray that these things we're talking about just add supportive layers to an already existing faith. For those, Lord, that are not people of faith yet, whether they're here in this room or watching online, I pray, God, that something today will spark something in them that was so needed to get them over the hump of belief and understanding and faith. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit do a good work in that person's heart and that they, you would call them to be a follower of you. So Lord, I pray for our church family 
May we be a church that doesn't just hear what you say, but also does what you say. May we be a church filled with people who build their houses on the rock. No matter what comes in this life, Lord, we look to you and we believe in you and claim our faith in you. And when the storms come, our house will not fall. Thank you, Lord, for our eternal security that's written about in the pages of your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can know without a shadow of a doubt that we are loved and we are destined for heaven if we choose to be. So, Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for also bringing to our attention the stuff that will keep us from it, sin. We thank you, Lord, for teaching us through your word that you sent your son Jesus down the cross to conquer that sin. You rose to life, conquering death forever. Lord, we thank you for what you teach us in your word. May we believe it with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.